Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 8th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in The New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fallspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, are you guys uh, isolated in coronavirus uh, isolation chambers? No, I'm still going to the theater, for better or worse. Okay. Well, you know, I think Perel. Yeah. (laughs) Wash your hands in Perel. And uh, and it's very interesting that uh, uh, the governor of New York, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, has declared New York a state of of disaster. And we're very uh, interested to see if that will eventually affect what's happening in the Broadway communities. Uh, The NBA, the National Basketball Association, which is our uh, basketball league, professional basketball sports, is talking about having basketball games with no... Uh, no fans. Yeah. No fans. Yeah. So, um, yes, they have that type um, of thing. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, that said, um, the Hasty Pudding Club, uh, show, uh-huh. uh, canceled, uh, this weekend in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, breaking the heart of my oldest and dearest friend who has seen every one of them since 1973. Oh my gosh. So, um, cause he had tickets for this final weekend, but the final weekend turned out to be last weekend. So, so we may see more of this as time goes on. And of course, uh, this will have a great impact because as we know, the hottest shows uh, on Broadway are, are opening, um, in, in this part of the year and we'll see if they get to open. Who knows? Well, you know, I'm very confused, very, very confused by the whole thing. But as far as canceling things like shows and basketball games, I guess the theory being that the more people yeah. are in one place, the, the chances are harder. But I would say, I hate to even say this, but I would, it would seem to me that, for example, a subway car yeah. Or, yeah. or a bus would be yeah. far worse yeah. Because of the proximity, so well, there, you know, lots of companies are are t- you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon are having their employees work from home. Yes, yes. Right. yes. And so maybe this is an opportunity for Broadway HD to sweep in and yeah. uh, be <laughs> yes. broadcasting and streaming Broadway shows if you have the appropriate ticket. That way, you don't miss it. 
That's a yeah. That's a great idea. I think so. But you know, something that is really, really important that's coming up is on uh, March 23rd at the K Playhouse at Hunter College. The acting company is going to present a benefit reading of Arthur Miller's drama A View from the Bridge, and uh, nothing's going to keep Michael from going to this, right? If they do it, I'll, I will certainly try to be. Yeah, no, I mean, gosh, um, yeah. This this sounds like it could be really something. A View from the Bridge is one of my favorites. I directed a production once, so it's very close to my heart, and I do think it's one of Arthur Miller's best plays. And uh, yeah, Bobby Cannavale and wife Rose Byrne are doing it at uh, as as James said on March twenty third, seven p.m. at the K Playhouse at Hunter College, and. Um, it's uh, so those would be the roles of Eddie Carbone and his wife Beatrice. And I'm I the uh, announcements I've read so far didn't did, hadn't announced anyone else uh, because it is a benefit and it's going to be a reading. I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of rehearsal, but I it seems to me like that would be a wonderful role for both of those wonderful actors uh, who are both coming off a great success in Medea at BAM. Close to Medea. Mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I don't, I didn't get it. It's not quite Medea, is no, it? It's, it's, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it? They talk about Medea, but no, although, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's funny you say that because um, in a view from the bridge, especially at the beginning, uh, Miller makes the point perhaps maybe a little too heavy handedly about how it's a kind of a Greek tragedy story. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the ancestors of, uh, you know, of these Italian Americans and how, uh, you know, like hundreds and hundreds and, uh, and hundreds of years ago, uh, something like this might've happened on the, on the, on the, uh, on the beaches of Corsica or whatever he says, uh, um, and uh, so he does make that connection, and and there are elements of that in it. Uh, so it's not as uh, far removed from Medea as you might think, although the plot, of course, is yeah. quite different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everything in my house uh, in the last month or so has has broken, uh, you know, oh. as 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 happens very often. <laughs> so our fridge broke, and then the front door broke, and then mm. the TV broke, and so uh, mm. we we went and got another TV, and oh. uh, and we're testing it out by pulling up our Disney Plus subscription, and for the first time, I watched the live. Uh, I don't I don't even know what to call it. I guess it's the live action Lion King. Have you guys seen this live action Lion King? No. Yeah. How was it? It's fast. I, I was just marveled at how amazing the the uh, the CGI. work is. The CGI work is just really, really wonderful. And I feel like it it has um, stolen a bit from the Broadway production, and uh-huh. also stolen. Uh, you know, it's based upon the the original uh, animated feature. Um, and then we got to talking about how Lion King is, you know, reflective of uh, Hamlet, and because uh, mm-hmm. my, my oh, yes. wife is my wife sure. is famously just, uh, you know, whenever we get invited to Shakespeare in the park, she's like, "You're taking somebody else. I'm not going." So uh-huh. she really is not a big fan of Shakespeare, and I'm like, "But Shakespeare is the basis of everything." And so I mm-hmm. brought this up that Lion King was the basis of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Do you guys? I, I mean, am, am I wrong in that assertion? No, no, that's been said many times, many yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah. And isn't Hamlet now, or wasn't it just very recently done? Sure. Um, 
with at, Bobby Cannavale and Rose? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I did not see it. It but. was, I think it was for the Rose, but uh, not that Rose, a Rose by another name, um, who did smell reasonably sweet, um, which is part of the problem in playing Hamlet, but that's another story. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, sure. Um, uh, uh, it's been said many times that um, Hamlet uh, certainly had an influence on The Lion King. And so, uh, well, going back to that famous statement, there are only seven plots anyway, you know, so uh, That's, I, guess, yeah. I guess this would uh, qualify there. All right. Was this the uh, St. Anne's Warehouse that you were talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Peter yeah. Reibuk reported on it, didn't you? Yeah. 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 Oh, the last performance is today, March uh-huh. 8th. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So let's move a little bit into our agenda for the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter, you uh, let you were going to tell us about the winner of the Yale Drama Series. So what's up with that? Well, the Yale Drama Series started um, about 17 years ago, uh, thanks to the David Charles Horn Foundation. Uh, his widow, Francine Cornsweet Horn, uh, decided she wanted to do something to help the arts and thought that um, starting uh, a play competition um, in uh, conjunction with Yale would be a good idea. And so um, what happens is the winner of the competition gets $10,000 and gets the play published by the Yale um, Drama Mm. um, Publishing uh, University Press and gets a stage reading. Well, this year's um, winner uh, was How to Defend Yourself. Uh, Liliana Padilla uh, was the author of this play, and it was done the other night as a reading, but directed by Rachel Chafkin, which is a pretty good coup, huh? I'm still mad she didn't win for Natasha Pierre, but I'm glad that she subsequently won. Mm. Anyway, um, so the play How to Defend Yourself uh, is about um, a, a rape on a college campus. Now, it's it's not what you think at all, um, because what it really deals with is the aftermath of that. And a lot of women uh, on campus decide what they should do is go to a karate cap class and find out how to defend themselves. So that's what's really important to them. And what's really interesting and fascinating and engrossing about this play is that the person who runs the karate class is going to be one you're going to question as time goes on. She's She certainly uh, has her opinions. She certainly wants to teach these women how to do what she wants to do. And yet, a lot of these women's will, women will turn out to uh, question her and also question their own uh, philosophies where it comes to sex. Um, the point is very well made that sex is really a very different place, um, a very different planet almost uh, for many people. And there's a lot of frank talk about how people regard sex um, that may make some people uncomfortable, but certainly has uh, struck me as having a lot of truth in it. Now, coming into the class at one point are um, two men, and I was a little worried here that they were going to be mocked for being, as Christine Lavin says in a song that we heard in one of the uh, A My Name is Alice reviews, sensitive new age guys, you know, and I thought they were going to be mocked for that. But Padilla is very fair 
very fair indeed to all sides here. And I think that's what makes this play extraordinary. Um, I defy you to know where it's going to turn out. And when you find out where it does turn out, you're going to be tremendously satisfied, I dare say. And you'll get a chance to see it this year at um, the Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago, which has certainly been an incubator for many important plays that have uh, gone on to uh, great success, uh, including Stupid Fucking Bird. Um, Ayad Akhtar, um, certainly one of our most important playwrights now, headed the committee that um, read 1,750 plays. Uh, so this was really quite a coup to be to come out number one out of 1,750. I mean, uh, of course, all playwright competitions today um, have a number of people who apply. Um, uh, certainly, I know that um, I, uh, John Wooten out at Kane University, who uh, runs premier stages, had over 900 scripts this year submitted for um, for slots. So, uh, and again, one per, one play gets to be the uh the uh selection that's going to be done this summer but um you know so the stakes are really high and uh, the competition is quite keen uh and uh, so you really have to be impressed with what Liliana Padilla did and for that matter with Ayad Akhtar did too in heading a committee and reading a number of plays and he, he swears that every play got read and he, some people might say oh yeah here's another woman winning because women um are, are in the vanguard now and everybody wants to encourage women playwrights and, and that's true and that's good however all these submissions are blind submissions so they have no idea who's writing these plays so uh, that's a, a very important thing as well. So under the circumstances, I do believe we are going to see how to defend yourself in many venues in the future. And I'll certainly be uh, in the audience applauding them on. Wow, that's great. So uh, how to defend yourself. Um, I have linked to the, uh, the Yale website with information about the book. You can actually purchase the book there. And uh, if you are an artistic director or somebody else that's just interested, you know, you can get that there and, uh, and see if it, it's up your alley to be presented in your theater. So that's awesome. Uh, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia question? Well, yes, I do. And it was so interesting that so many of our um, stalwarts tried so hard to answer <laughs> this question and um, didn't have um, much success. Um, Jack Leshner, Fred Abramowitz, Ingrid Gammerman, Cheryl Hodge Selden, and of course, Brigadude uh, made attempts but couldn't crack it. Uh, who did? Well, his initials are TJ. <laughs> And as we all know, TJ is max <laughs> where it comes to the answers, <laughs> though Scott McHugh quickly followed. All right. So what was the question? What do these shows have in common? Coco, Jimmy, the Irene Revival, The Wiz, Annie, Grant Hotel, and American Idiot. And the answer is they all had songs that involved streets. Coco on the corner of the Rue Cambon, Jimmy Riverside Drive, the Irene Revival, the world must be bigger than an avenue. The Wiz, ease on down the road. Mm -hmm. Annie, easy street. Grand Hotel, the crooked path. And American Idiot, Boulevard of Broken Dreams. So that's how it played out this week. You know, I, I was in a high school production of Irene playing Madame Lucy, and I had seen the show on Broadway with, with Debbie Reynolds. And I always loved that song, uh, 
the world must be bigger than an avenue, which I believe was written by Wally Harper, correct? Uh, in fact, when I saw the tryout of Irene in uh, the National Theater in Washington, D.C., it was not in yet. So, yes, indeed, it certainly was written by Wally Harper and it gets the show off to a dynamic start, which it's very much great. needed. It sure is. It yeah. sure is. You know, um, I don't know if anybody out there um, um, knows Irene uh, because it seems to have fallen into some type of obscurity. Mm. But I think it's an extraordinarily entertaining original cast album. Yes. And it's also a good um, it's a heroine who has uh, aged very well in terms of uh, women's empowerment. Yes. Good you know, Good so I think that there could be a revival. But anyway, to complete my thought, I uh, uh, that was years before uh, when I was in high school. <laughs> that was years before I lived on Ninth Avenue. And when I <laughs> first moved to it, of course, that song was constantly running through my head. And I also remember some of that. One of Madame Lucy's lines is he's supposed to be very grand and very pretentious. And then it turns out he has a a history, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, you know, while he's being grand and pretentious, someone mentions Ninth Avenue, and he says, Ninth Avenue. I only go that far west when I take the boat to Europe." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always remember that he said that. And here I was living in a, you know, in a walk up on uh, Fifth Avenue, uh, fifth, uh, fifth floor walk up, fifth floor walk up. All right. <laughs> um, Michael, you might explain um, how um, a man is playing Madame Lucy. Uh, the reason for that is? Oh, because he is a, uh, a designer, a, a dress designer, and he uh, feels that he needs to uh, have a, a name like that in mm -hmm. order to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. But then, but, then, but it turns out there's a lot more about him. That's, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's not quite what it appears to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So talking about something that doesn't quite appear what it quite is what it appears to be <laughs> yeah peter you got to see girl from the north country the um collection of bob dylan mu uh, music in a play and uh my first question to you peter is is this a play or a musical well um in a way it seems more like a play with music in that mm. um we certainly have uh, dramatic situations, uh, courtesy of the very fine playwright, Connor McPherson. And every now and then people walk up to the front of the stage and go to a microphone and sing a song. And those are the Bob Dylan songs. Um, not necessarily his greatest hits, though the Rolling Stone song is in there, but um, um, things that, uh, that haven't been heard that often, um, even by Dylan aficionados. Uh, none of them will be mysteries to them, but nevertheless, um, we're not looking at the, um, the most famous songs solely, um, as is the case with many jukebox musicals. Um, it's a very, very fine show, and it has tremendous worth um, in, in its book, dealing with... Um, a, a, a very depressed, um, shall we say, um, bed and breakfast, um, rooming house um, uh, in Duluth, Minnesota. And it's 1934 and times are tough. The depression is on. And you meet, so really the show could be called Not So Grand Hotel because hmm. that's exactly what's going on here. Um, people from all walks of life, some in trouble, some in serious trouble, 
um, some in very serious trouble, not just economically, but in trouble with the law, et cetera, et cetera. And people who are going to uh, be interested in blackmailing other people. So um, this is not a congenial group. Um, and uh, the opening number of Pipe Dream, uh, the second act of Pipe Dream, the happiest house on the block would not be uh, appropriate for this show at all. So um, what's really wonderful is that much of the cast from uh, the public theater production of um, uh, last year or so, whenever it was, is back. It is true that J.O. Sanders is now in the show playing the um, owner of the rooming house, and he's quite wonderful, which is no surprise. But um, the the real standout performance for me is Mayor Winningham, who plays his wife, who is not unlike the fool in Shakespeare. I mean, she, she really um, does have truth that she wants to dispense. Um, however, um, unlike the fool in Shakespeare, she's somewhat mentally unbalanced, but every now and then she comes out with a good one. It's not unlike the ferryman last year when Fiona Flanagan sat in a wheelchair and said nothing for most of hmm. the play, but then suddenly perked up and, and started talking and, and came out with some uh, good perceptions and good memories. Well, every now and then, Mayor Winningham comes out with something that really is truth about the people who are staying at that boarding house. And um, But a magnificent performance. I will be astonished if she doesn't get a nomination and um, of course there are many musicals to go yet but nevertheless um, I don't think it's impossible that she will win the Tony um, I'll certainly applaud heartily if she, indeed she does because she is so good at playing this person who uh, is <laughs> uh, wise at one moment and, and not at the other so but everybody's so good in it Mark Kudish is the person who's um who's being blackmailed and um he's quite wonderful luba mason uh, not only uh, uh is wonderful <laughs> in a small role but she even gets to play the drums and uh, she can really um um use those sticks to best advantage so that's good um Reverend Marlowe, uh, played by Matt McGrath, whom uh, many uh, saw as Hedwig many years ago. In fact, some even saw play the newsboy in the original mm. Broadway production of Working when he was a little boy. Uh, gee, it's great to be a newsboy. That song, if you know that, well, that was sung by Mark, uh, Matt McGrath on the um, cast album. And here he is all grown up. And um, now he's playing Reverend Marlowe. We'll see how much of a reverend he is and how reverend we should all be with him. So um, this show doesn't need to be a musical. Um, it would be a very strong straight play. But the Dylan songs are entertaining, and they're well sung, and um, I think it's a fine addition to the Broadway season. And for me, this is the one that, um, of all the shows I've seen so far, that I would um, give the Tony to. As I say, you know, a lot to come, but so far, this is in first place with me. Okay. So, uh, and um, ha did you find it very different from no. the... No, um, and um, some people have uh, said, "Gee, it's um, it, it it was more intimate with the public," and of course it was. But Small, I think it fills, yeah. yeah, I think it fills the stage quite fine, and um, uh, I, I think it's a very enjoyable experience here as well as it was there. I liked it there. I like it here. Okay. So uh, that's Girl from the North Country. Michael and I are scheduled to see it this week, so we'll uh, revisit this again next week and complete our conversation there around it. This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by our friends at ExpressVPN. 
Some of you may not know what a VPN is. It stands for Virtual Private Network. There are many reasons to use a VPN, but I want to talk about two that I believe are most important to you, the listener. The first reason to use ExpressVPN is security. If you're connected to a public Wi-Fi network at a hotel, an airport, a coffee shop, wherever, there are no way to know how secure this network is. It could be 100% secure, or it could be very insecure and showing all of your personal information. If you use ExpressVPN on any of your devices, a laptop, phone, tablets, whatever, this will prevent anyone else from seeing your personal info. The second reason to use ExpressVPN it can change your location so you can view services that are restricted by location. Like, uh, say, you, if you want to watch the BBC or NT Live from the U.S., you can use ExpressVPN to make uh, them think that you are in the U.K. and vice versa. If you are in another part of the world and want to view PBS great performances, use ExpressVPN to connect to PBS.org. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. Don't let technology stop you from getting in your Sondheim fix. ExpressVPN is lightning fast and you will not have any buffering issues that you have in other VPN services. So if you want to visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio. Peter, you also got over to the Vineyard Theater to see Dana H., which is a very hot ticket right now. So tell us about Dana H. Yeah, it even got extended, I'm happy to say, which is really great. Well, you know, I, <laughs> it's very odd to come up with a, a, a song from Dr. Doolittle um, to, to describe this show, but there is a wonderful song in Dr. Doolittle, uh, which has the line, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I, and, I, <laughs> and I dare say you never have, and you probably never will again. Um, Deirdre O'Connor is playing Dana Higginbotham. Now, her son is better known. Uh, he's Lucas Nath, the uh, wonderful playwright who uh, won Obies for Red Speedo and the Christians and uh, who authored Hillary and Clinton last season. So uh, one of our strongest young playwrights. And uh, But his mother uh, wasn't in the arts at all. She was... Um, a person who uh, was a psych ward chaplain. And um, she was assigned to a, a man named Jim, um, an ex-con who was raised in the Aryan Brotherhood. So we know this is going to be a tough guy. But Higginbottom saw some good in the man. And he seemed like he wanted to improve his life. So, so far, so good. Um, well, her giving him the benefit of the doubt did not yield many benefits, I assure you. The more she helped him, the more he became drawn to her and eventually kidnapped her. Yeah. Now you might say, well, wait, 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 yeah. Kidnapping. This is what you've never mm -hmm. seen in your life. I mean, how many stories have there been about kidnapping the collector? I mean, so many movies. In fact, if you go to IMDB and type in kidnapping <laughs> hostage stories, they have a list of 217 films only dating back to 1965. I mean, there were certainly ones before that. So, I mean, uh, so how, how is this so um, different from everything? Well, what makes it different is a very strange convention. And that is that uh, Lucas Nath decided to use the tapes of, a of sessions his mother had um, with uh, an interviewer telling her story of her five months in captivity with this man. Okay, so 
there we are listening to the tapes while Deirdre O'Connell is on stage lip syncing to what's being said. And this is an amazing achievement because there are times when um, Dana Higginbotham herself on the tapes pauses, coughs, sneezes, and everything has to be perfectly timed. Now, we've seen a lot of biographical one-person shows. I mean, Hal Holbrook is Mark Twain, Julie Harris is Emily Dickinson, Henry Fonda is Clarence Darrow. I mean, we've had a million of these. Now, and the thing is, we have no idea, really, um, how, well, let's say most audiences come into the theater having no idea what Mark Twain and Emily Dickinson and Clarence Darrow sounded like. I, I, I imagine there may be a couple of recordings of um, Mark Twain or Clarence Darrow here and there. I'm not nearly as sure as Emily Dickinson, who is quite reclusive. But, you know, here we know we're getting the real voice of the person. No question about that. But the other thing is taking away nothing from um, Hal Holbrook or Julie Harris or Henry Fonda. But when they were doing their shows, if they wanted to pause for a second, take a few seconds longer to um, pause before the next line, they can. But just as, just as Dana H. herself became a slave to Jim, in a strange way, Deirdre O'Connor was a slave to this tape. That this is directing her. Now, um, there is a director attached to this, and that's uh, Les Waters, who's a fine director. Um, but let's face it, the tail, and in this case, T-A-L-E, uh, wags the dog because um, it's, it's the tape that makes the decisions on when things are going to be said. Now, he may have said to her, um, listen, I think you should grimace there. Um, I think you should smile there. And occasionally she does smile. Occasionally she even makes a joke or two about what happened. Um, she laughs at her situation from time to time, but that's a defense mechanism. We understand it. She laughs. The audience doesn't very often, I assure you, because this is one harrowing tale. Um, so it's an amazing thing to watch her be letter perfect. I mean, we all know about that uh, word processing application called Word Perfect. Well, when you go to this play from now on, you might think of Word Perfect as Deirdre O'Connell rather than that application, because I'm telling you, it's flabbergasting. I know Jerome Robbins Broadway took 22 weeks of rehearsals, uh, and I think that's the longest rehearsal on record. But I I can't imagine that um, Deirdre O'Connell didn't spend more than 22 weeks patiently and painstakingly learning every syllable of this tape so that she could be perfect in doing it. It really is quite astonishing. And now it's 75 minutes long. To be fair, after about an hour, she she doesn't do it anymore. She goes to the window and um, looks out the window while the tape still plays. And there's also a scene that I think is very strangely irrelevant. Um, I won't say what it is, but um, I, I don't really know what it has mm. to do, but it doesn't involve her uh, at all. Um, but um, I'll leave it at that. But then she does come back and finishes the show. And um, there's about five minutes. I would say that she does uh, more lip syncing. And um, pretty amazing. I guess Lucas Nath figured, all right, you know, I, my mother's not an actress, so I'm not going to put her on stage. But I want it to be replicated as close to possible. And that's why the lip syncing occurs. I guess that's his motivation. Again, this is a, a guess, nothing more. But <laughs> you've never seen anything like it in your life. Well, two things. I'm sorry, Marnie Nixon is not still around. 
I would have loved to be here to see this. But also, how fascinating. Are there any notes um, in the in the playbill or in the script or anywhere else, Peter, as to what exactly made him think of doing it this extraordinary way? Um, there is a note from the artistic directors. Of okay. The vineyard, um, but, um, and, uh, but I think, uh, uh, Lucas was on NPR or oh, something. Yeah? I have to go back and, and see if I could dig it up. It was about two mm-hmm. weeks ago. And he, he talked about that exact th- thing, oh, okay. Michael. Okay, and, and, uh, it, it, it it's, you know the the most simple answer is that he really wanted to uh present his mother's thoughts as as clearly as possible without uh coloring I them see. too much right. i i'm I'll, i i don't have it at my fingertips but i'll see if i can find it and if i do find it i'll send it to you and peter and let the uh listeners know about this Great. next week all right so uh yeah that is um, Dana H. at the Vineyard. It's through Saturday, April 11th. Uh, so uh, check that out. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to the Sheen Center to see the Culture Project's uh, presentation of About Love. So why don't you tell us about it? Yes, this was a, another uh, quite unusual piece uh, billed as a play with songs and music. Uh, and it is based on um, a work by... I thought, uh, what pronunciation is correct? Ivan Turgenev, Turgenev, anyway, T U R G E N E V. And one interesting thing to begin with is that I have uh, read in various places, uh, in some places I've read the work described as a novella, in other places as a novel, and in other places as a short story. So I guess maybe lengthwise it must be. Um, somewhere in between those or somewhere among those i suppose it's either a very long short story or or a short novel um and it is based in reality uh, about an experience he had when he was very young uh and in the play itself it's the the character this is a 16 year old boy named peter uh, played by jeffrey kringer in this production and he um is in the Russian countryside with his family and he becomes infatuated with a slightly older female, uh, 20, 21 years old, I believe. Uh, and her name is Zina. That's what she's called here. And she's played by Sylvia Bond. And it's, uh, he really becomes infatuated with her. There are, um, I think mostly because of the country home aspect uh, this piece might make you think of such other uh, works as Call Me By Your Name, uh, although obviously there are a lot of differences as well. Um, and then A Room With A View or works like that. Uh, it, it, it has a general um, s- similarity in, the ter- in terms of a, a, you know, a very young person just falling passionately in love with, with someone else, uh, in this case, someone slightly older. Um, in a in a bucolic situation, um, the another interesting thing about this piece is when you get the program, uh, you will see that there are six so- only six songs listed, um, and it uh, I don't know why I had it in my head when I was going in that it was a, a musical. But it is billed as a play with songs and music. And the songs 
uh, are, are there are lots of stretches of long stretches of dialogue between them. Uh, so it's really not, it, you really couldn't say it's a musical. Um, and not only that, but the, uh, I said there are six songs listed, but then if you look more closely, you'll see that one of those six is actually a reprise of two other songs that you'd heard uh, previously. So uh, it's even fewer than that. And the music uh, is by... Uh, well, it's music and lyrics by Nancy Harrow is how it's billed. But then if you look again closely, uh, it says all music and lyrics by Nancy Harrow, with the exception of the title song about love, uh, music by John Lewis, lyric by Nancy Harrow, and a little blue lyric by Raymond Patterson, music by Nancy Harrow. So she didn't even write the music for all of the songs. Uh, and that's i find that interesting as well um the songs are written in a uh, a fairly modern uh jazz uh, and sometimes blues style very very attractive music i found the lyrics um extremely generic and simple uh maybe that was the point but i but if so i think that uh, I don't think that was a good idea. I, 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 uh, maybe it was intentional to try to make it a, just a very, very universal, simple story, but I, I found them a little too prosaic and a little too simplistic. So um, I would say that that was one of the major flaws of the show. Um, there's also the device here, uh, which I know why they did it, but I'm not sure how I feel about it, is that the narration of the piece is broken up uh, among all of the characters, even though theoretically it's, I, I would say it's always uh, or almost always, I guess always young Peter who's supposed to be speaking and he starts it, mm -hmm. but then the others uh, chime in and they'll take a, a line or two here and there. And then it goes to someone else. Uh, I, one gets the impression and actually I have to look up the, the, source material um i got the impression did you peter that they are doing the entire text of the piece oh that didn't occur to me but i see your point um what i will say though um in terms of uh, the people speaking if anybody's familiar with uh, paul sill's story mm. theater it's that type of approach where people just uh, chime in and, and narrate what's going on uh, without any regard to characterization. This is uh, uh, my saying without any regard makes it sound um, critical, and I don't mean it in that way. It's a style, and indeed, um, it's a time-honored style, and uh, they're doing it, and uh, they're doing it quite well. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Very much story theater. Um, but I think, as I say, it seemed like it might be the entire text uh, that Turgenev wrote, uh, in addition to the, the songs, obviously. And on the one hand, they, I, I was very conscious of the fact that they were talking very, very fast. And uh, on the one hand, I did appreciate that, uh, because if they hadn't done that, I think it might have been a three-hour show uh as it was it was not much more than 90 minutes with no intermission um so as far as the uh not having to, to sit through a marathon i appreciated that but i do think that it to a certain degree it, it worked against the um emotional power of the piece i really was very very conscious of 
them talking very, very quickly. Uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if you felt that, Peter, you can weigh in in a moment. Um, I, I, hmm. But I certainly noticed that. Uh, the cast is uniformly excellent, uh, especially the, the, I guess, the, the two central roles. Uh, Jeffrey Kringer as Peter, I, I have no idea what his actual age is. I imagine he's considerably older than 16, but he certainly did a wonderful job of um, portraying that innocence and that wide open emotional state. Uh, And so I I think he was perfectly cast. And the thing that I loved most about Sylvia Bond in the role of his, his, the object of his affection was that she, it it seemed to me that she was um, coming across as almost, I want to say a Lolita, someone who is just naturally seductive uh, and maybe not even realizing it, but it's just, that's, that's the way she is. Uh, and that explains why she has, in addition to uh, Peter being so drawn to her, she has other suitors in the play uh, that we know about, that we find out about as it's going along. And then even another one that is not revealed until almost the end. Uh, so she's got a lot of men buzzing around her. And I think that was very easy to understand because aside from the fact that she's just a very beautiful uh, person, uh, actress, uh, she did have that seductive quality that I thought was very important to it. It seemed to me that that was essential to the character, even though this is the first time I came across the piece. So um, I had mixed feelings about it for and, and the, uh, the issues that I mentioned, but I do think it is really worthwhile seeing it. And those two performances are quite extraordinary as well as the other, the rest of the cast. Well, it's funny because um, I, I didn't think of Lolita. Frankly, I thought more of Carmen Jones. <laughs> um, and <laughs> because this is a lady who really uh, loves the attention and uh, she doesn't care where the collateral damage falls. So, uh, and Sylvia Bond was magnificent in the part, magnificent. Um, I also uh, very much admired Jean Taffler, who uh, played uh, Peter's mother. And um, so, uh, uh, but the music I thought was quite lovely and I wish there were more mm-hmm. of it. Um, that's, uh, that's my complaint, which is, uh, 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 well, let's look at the glasses half full. Um, the songs I think are really quite wonderful. I'm not looking to th- expect a CD of it because there are so few songs, but nevertheless, um, I, I wish I could hear them again because, um, some of those melodies were glorious beyond belief. So no matter who wrote them, but, um, and, uh, I'm glad that, uh, Nancy Harrow is still working in the theater. Um, she has, um, done a few musicals here and there, um, including a children's musical that's been very successful. Um, the title involves Maya the Bee, um, M-A-Y-A, the Bee, you know, like, um, a bee that stings. Um, so, uh, so she's, she really is interested in musical theater, even though her roots are in jazz. And, um, I'm, I, I want to hear more of her. I do wonder why the title song was written by someone else. Uh, yeah, the music yeah. for the title song by someone else. That I wonder what the story is behind that. Uh, but I, I completely agree. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, this is a culture project presentation at the Sheen Center and very, very basic in terms of the set. Uh, but I thought that the costumes and the lighting 
especially the lighting were some of the best I have ever seen in that kind of situation. They, uh, the, the lighting designed by Alan Hahn, H-A-H-N, it was incredibly skillful in uh, – denoting changes in slight changes in locale and time mm -hmm. and 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 isolating certain characters when they needed to be i uh mm -hmm. i was looking up at you know and looking at the instruments and and because it seemed like there were thousands <laughs> uh it everything was was so meticulous and, and covered so well but obviously it's not uh nothing even close to what you would see in a lighting grid for a Broadway show. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. So he really deserves uh, uh, an award, I would say. <laughs> and if not, at least recognition for a, a truly, truly stellar effort. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So that is about love at the Sheen Center uh, down on Bleecker Street. It's through March uh, 22nd. We'll have a link to that in the show mm -hmm. notes. Peter, you got over to 5090's 59 to see a play called Mr. Tool. So tell us about this. Mr. Tool is about the author of A Confederacy of Dunces, John Kennedy Tool, um, a tremendous novel. Uh, it's a very sad story, though, because the guy wrote the novel and um, never saw it published, didn't know that it would eventually win a Pulitzer mm. Prize. Um, if you get the actual novel, but that's in print right now. There's a wonderful uh, essay at the beginning by the editor uh, who found the book talking about the fact that um, this writer's mother would show up at his office and say, you got to read this, you got to read this. And uh, she was such a pain that he finds out, all right, all right, all right, I'll read it. I'll read the first 10 pages. And he couldn't stop. So um, it's a hilarious novel. And I'm telling you, I was on the subway reading it. And don't you hate when this happens when you're on the subway and you're reading something funny and you start laughing hysterically and people are looking at you and staring and begrudging you the fact that you're having such a good time? Well, that's what happened in the sequence where um, our character, Ignatius, goes to see. It's not mentioned what it is, but it's clear what it is if you know the movie. The Doris Day Cary Grant movie called That Touch of Mink. And he is so outraged at uh, this story of Doris Day, who's no kid at this point, being a virgin and um, fearing to go to bed with uh, Cary Grant and how it doesn't work out. And he, he he's just he's almost like screaming in agony while watching this picture. And when it's all done, he says, you know, I think I'll come back tomorrow and see it again because I mean, he just loves to be outraged. He's really quite the curmudgeon and <laughs> it's a, a terrific novel. Okay. So the, the story of this man uh, would be of more than moderate interest. And in a way you may be reminded every now and then of the glass menagerie, because what you have here is a truly, overbearing mother if you know the story that i just related about her being um intense with the uh the editor it really dovetails nicely with this play and linda pearl is magnificent as this woman who wants to run her son's life he is still living at home and we have a father who would like to be more involved, but he just cannot fight this woman. It just cannot be done. It's just too hard for him to remotely fight her. And um, so what does John do, um, given the fact that uh, he's not um, getting any money from writing? Well, he's a teacher at a school. And um, that is um, 
where we meet uh, Lisette, his student. Now, the play is written by, written by Vivian Newworth, same spelling as BB. I don't know if there's a relation, but um, actually she was Mr. Toole's student. So to a degree, this play is somewhat autobiographical. Mm-hmm. And um, she is crazy for him. Um, the way that a lot of students are in love with their teachers, uh, well, that's what's going on here. And uh, nothing unsavory happens here. Uh, Mr. Toole isn't much interested in doing anything like that, partly because it's established that he's gay, though he's quite closeted, especially when you're living at home with a mother like that. Um, it's not easy to uh, bring people to the apartment. So. Um, but he wouldn't do anything anyway. He's, he's, a, he's a very upright guy, and um, but he is trying to find himself. And so it's a very, very fine production, thanks to Cat Parker, who's directed it superbly. And um, I have to say that the cast is really quite wonderful, especially Stephen Schnetzer as uh, John, and as uh, I mentioned, Linda Pearl as Thelma. That's the character name. And uh, Julia Randall as Lisette. So these are um, marvelous, marvelous performances, as well as Ryan Spahn, who has a thankless role in many, because it's very hard to be passive and still um, have an impact. And yet he does. You know, you really feel for this guy who's really trying to be a part of this um, almost cabal that um, these two people have. And um, so that's um, that's really something. Um, The play, I think, would be better if every now and then we heard some selections from a confederacy of dunces because they would tear down the house, especially the one I mentioned about that touch of mink. Um, <laughs> and aside, the, the beads, nothing <laughs> to this play, but uh, well, you know that famous Neil Simon statement in the Sunshine Boys, words with a K <laughs> of funny? Watch hmm. that touch of mink and see how many times there are K sounds in the dialogue. It's astonishing. Uh, <laughs> not that um, Mr. Toole notices that uh, in um, a Confederacy of Dunces, but I did. Uh, but certainly, uh, Mr. Toole wrote quite a book, and Vivian Newworth has written quite a play. Okay, so that is uh, Mr. Toole over 59 is 59. And uh, that's playing through March 15th, so you have about a week left to go uh, check that out. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, finally, this morning, Peter, you got over to the Green Room 42 to see Mark William in his uh, show. Um, Peter, you might, um, listeners might remember that Peter reviewed Mark's CD on This Week on Broadway in October of uh, 2019. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So, Peter, what did you think of the show? Well, in October, I said uh, that Mark Williams had uh, come out with the album of the year. And, uh, of course, there were two months to go. Um, It's still the album of 2019. And, frankly, I haven't heard another pop album uh, in these uh, two and a half months of 2020 that's eclipsed it either. Um, I I will admit, of course, that some of this has to do with the fact that uh, Mark Williams, though a young man, probably still in his 20s. I may be wrong about that, but if he's in his 30s, um, I'll be surprised. 
uh, is very interested in uh, doing songs of Broadway of yore. I mean, one you might expect um, in a program like this to hear I've Gotta Be Me from Golden Rainbow, but you might not expect to hear Golden Rainbow, the title song itself, but there it is. Um, he, he really does go back, and many of the songs that he does are from the 60s. He talks about uh, being enamored of uh, Steve Lawrence and Frank Sinatra, and um, there's even a song he's written uh, in the style. He does a new song uh, in, the, in the style of Sinatra. He does some Peter Allen songs as well. But um, to hear Jerry Herman's songs and um, uh, from a young man is really, really something. He's got a wonderful voice. He really knows exactly the type of material he should be doing, given the voice he has. And um, he really has maximized his opportunities. And the crowd went wild for him. And he's really got a following because who was there? Cheetah Rivera was there. Cheetah Rivera came to see him. I mean, really, um, I'm pretty impressed by that, aren't you? That um, that she would come out on a Saturday night to uh, to see him do this Friday night, actually. Now that I think of it, but anyway, um, there were other luminaries in the audience too. Uh, Harvey Evans was there. Chuck Abbott, the director, was there. A lot of good people were there, and um, one really has to be impressed that uh, word is getting around that this Mark William is quite a vocalist. Okay, so um, I believe that uh, he doesn't have anything scheduled right now at Green Room 42. That was the, a, uh, the, the last of his series, but I have it included a link back to Mark's website and to Green Room 42 in case you want to catch up with him, and he seems to be all over social media as well and easy to find on the Internet uh, if you want to check out Mark's other work and uh, some YouTube videos as well. So before we wrap up and get on to the trivia question, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. So, Peter, do you have a question for this week? Yeah. He was the leading man of a very high-profile 60 musical that had some of Broadway's greatest creative names attached. The show in which his sister appeared opened just a bit less than a year later. It was very low-profile, and yet it ran more than twice as long as her brother's eagerly anticipated musical. That show biz, hmm. folks. Okay, who are the brother and sister, and what were their respective shows? Okay, so if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. As fast as they can fly, oh, the world must be bigger than an Just, just show me a hero who's got fancy charms in his waiting arms. I'll be. I have loved to fill an ocean and stardust in my eye. So no matter what may happen, I'm giving it a try. Oh, the world must be bigger 
Na na na, bonito. 